0: and the US ahead of a return leg to Port of Spain on Monday are looking for a late winner here in leg 1. Robinson into the box, Pepe! Finally! And it's Ricardo Pepe with the goal.
1: Football live and underway here on ESPN Plus. Staying up late with us on this Thursday night, Hercules Gomez on the West Coast, Sebi Salazar on the East Coast in the aftermath of the United States men's national team and their 3-0 win over Trinidad and Tobago down in Austin. Herc, how you feeling? Mm. What are you wearing? It looks
2: nice. Oh, thank you. Uh, this is a Vasco de Gama uh, shirt. I like what you're wearing. Uh, this yes. is San Diego Soccer. Is my alma mater.
1: That's right. Everybody forgets about your uh, your heyday in the indoor games, but you were at one point a San Diego soccer. I think this is a, a vintage era even before your playing days. Is that correct, Herc? This, like this is from like the 80s or something.
2: Yeah, that was way before my days. Maybe yeah. Hugo Sanchez's days. At oh, the San Diego okay. Soccers.
1: That's that's going out way back. All you right. Uh, no Hugo Sanchez on our guest list today for Football Americas, but it is long. We got the Thomas Rongan who's going to join us in just a little bit. He's got a movie coming out. you probably heard of it, Next Goal Wins. TR played by uh, Michael Fassbender, so that should be very interesting. Midge Purse, we're going to hear from her. She was the MVP of the NWSL Championship game. Juan Guerra, who's the manager of Phoenix Rising. They just won the USL Championship. He's going to join us live. And then we're also going to have an interview with Paxton Aronson. Our colleague Luis Miguel Echegaray uh, got that for us. Last week, so plenty of people to talk to and lots to discuss on this edition of the show. But we are going to start with the highlights of the game that just wrapped up down at Q2 Stadium in Austin, Texas. The capital of the great state of Texas. USA against Trinidad and Tobago. Quarterfinals of the CONCACAF Nations League. First leg, second leg. Four days time in Trinidad. Pick this one up, seventh minute Serginho Dest. He's going to get the ball out on the right wing. I'm gonna have a go, but Denzel Smith with the save for Trinidad and Tobago. Yeah,
2: it looked like a cross, a, a cross shot, if you will. A hard across the face of goal, forcing the goalkeeper in a compromising position. Gets a save. To the of the Lots of stake in this one. Remember, you win this
1: quarterfinal. Series, you're automatically into the Copa America. TNT go down to ten men here in the 37th minute. Noah Powder, his second yellow card. Eric,
2: yeah, it's a silly challenge. No need to go in from behind. You're already sitting on the yellow, just begging for it. And then now your team's a man down for another hour in this game.
1: Weston McKinney, who was getting chopped up in that first half, draws the foul there. Trinidad and Tobago down to ten men. Still, it was scoreless into the second half. 55th minute, Gio Reyna going to turn,
2: shoot but can't beat Smith. That would actually be the first shot on target for the U.S. men's national team in this game. I repeat, first shot on target, minute 55. Two minutes later, U.S. back on the attack.
1: Eunice Musa from distance.
2: It was just one of those games. You need to test the goalkeeper, at least make him work. Eventually it will come. Eunice from distance.
1: Felt like it might be coming here on the hour mark, 60th minute. US, we're going to the spot as Weston McKinney goes down in the box. But wait a second,
2: whenever you don't want VAR, you know there's VAR. There's VAR here, Herc, and it was overturned. Yeah, it gets overturned. Weston McKinney, you mentioned just really beat up in this game. I mean, he was one of the better players for the US. Herc, how did they overturn this? That's crazy. What do you want, man? Give me Said he got the ball.
1: All right, 73rd minute. Sergino Dest very active in this one. The left-footed shot denied.
2: Sergio was active. He was inside, he was outside, he was crossing, he was shooting. We're gonna get a highlight reel coming tomorrow. That's right.
1: Follow Sergino Dest on Instagram to see all that he's done uh, in his games across both the uh, club and country. Pepe off the bench and onto the score sheet in the 82nd minute, Herc, at the near post.
2: Yeah, uh, stop me if you've heard this before. Ricardo Pepe comes on and saves Greg Burhalter. No? Yeah. No?
1: Well, oh, he I've did heard it, it before. before. I've heard it from you. He did it again. Did it again. Let's see if it uh, ends with a ticket to the World Cup this time. 86 minutes uh, after Anthony Robinson had made it two, here's uh, Gio Reyna to make it three.
2: Yeah, I thought Balogun really struggled this game. This is one of the better things he did. A good give and go, or I should say, layoff to Gio Reyna. Gio finishes the left foot 3-0. 3 0. So the U.S. 3 0 winners
1: over Trinidad and Tobago. Herc, what do you make of the American performance?
2: I wish you could just say, throw it out the window, right? Forget about it. Mm
3: -hmm. The fact
2: is you can't. This is now a situation where you've got to go play the return leg. And listen, three goals should be more than enough for you to manage a result in Trinidad and Tobago. But given its history on that island, given what we saw in the first half, the first 55 minutes, if you will, Mm -hmm. how lackluster the performance was, some of the questionable decisions... From Greg Berhalter both tactically and in personnel you have to feel a bit uneasy you have to really feel that you feel that 3% uneasy percent. about going to Trinidad
1: you think this team up three nothing can't handle its business Trinidad didn't get a shot forget a shot on goal they didn't have a shot attempt in this game Herc how are they gonna how are they gonna
2: overcome a three-goal deficit. I don't know. The same way they didn't make a World Cup in 2018, the same way they lost 2-1 to one in that 3% chance, and the stars aligned with Honduras beating Mexico and Costa Rica mm. losing to mm. Panama on a phantom goal, the same way those things happen, people still remember, Seb. People still remember. They're not going to forget just what happened. They're not going to forget the performance you put in in this game. The scoreline may say 3-0. Mm-hmm. The scoreline may read 3-0 at the end of this, but there was a part of you watching this that thought this could end 0-0. No, no! They could maybe even sneak one in and Trinidad could beat them. Mm -hmm. It wasn't until the final moments of this game, it wasn't until Ricardo Pepe comes on the field and scores that goal that you said, okay, the first one's in, now it gets easier. But now it's a race because you need the second one and you need the third one. Mm -hmm. You see what you can do. But tell me there wasn't a moment when you're watching Mm -hmm. this game that you're sitting there thinking, not again,
1: not again. Yeah, it, it felt like it was not, as you said during the highlight, going to be their night, right? When you have that much of the possession and you can't find a goal until the 80th minute against a team that's playing with 10 guys from basically the 35th minute on, uh, that's concerning. But Herc, I wonder if we allow ourselves to evaluate this team differently in a game like this where you really need a result, where that's what matters more than anything else than kind of the performance or the aesthetic, right? When, when they play against a Germany... You want to see how it looks. When you play against Trinidad and Tobago and you got a second leg coming up, the job is to make sure that that second leg basically doesn't matter. Um, at 3 nothing, going to Trinidad with this team, I don't think that second leg I'm matters. Out, I don't That's think there's a big Hulky's threat here. Job.
2: Is to beat Trinidad and Tobago to, to get past no, no, no. the semifinals. No, In this situation, it is to get Seb, to the semifinals. They are telling us it doesn't apply. They are telling us that they want the, they want to change the way the world views American are
3: soccer. Are you going to
1: change the way that the world views American soccer playing against a? Well, they were ten men for most of the game, but even when they were eleven, Herc Trinidad and Tobago set up all eleven guys.
2: And what did you do to penetrate that? What did you do to hurt the them? Goal. Seb, you're looking at this the wrong way. I have no issue with them having a professional performance. Mm -hmm. That wasn't professional, that was sloppy. It was sloppy by the manager in the decision-making tactically in the decision-making in personnel. It almost Mm -hmm. got away from them. I mean, you go into a game playing right into their hands with a 4-2-2-2 formation, like, come on, man. Like, (laughs) who are we kidding here? Like, what are we doing? We read Pep Guardiola's, you know, a a different way of winning, and now we all think we know what we're doing. We can mimic what Mm. Pep Guardiola does. We can mimic the personality. No, no, it's simple. Football's a simple game. Players, managers, Mm -hmm. they complicate things. You played right into their hands. You played narrow. You need to open them up. Make the game where they need to chase you so you can have those movements, you can have those opportunities. You used Malik Tillman, and Kevin Paredes as inverted wingers. Kevin Paredes and Malik Tillman didn't play well today. That's Mm -hmm. not on them, not all of it. Sure, they could be sharper, they could be better in certain situations, but you play them in positions that they would never play. When have they ever played in a 4-2-2-2 as inverted wingers? When is it suitable for Kevin Paredes to be in tight spaces like that to combine with a defense that's pretty much everybody in their own 18? Mm -hmm. When have you seen that from him? When has he been... That type of player, no, get him in open space. Get him isolated. Go in one v one Let him do something like that. Malik Tillman. Gio, T- Gio, Gio Reyna, Malik Tillman, how would they coexist? I honestly thought it would be Malik in the middle when I saw this formation and Geo out wide. Mm-hmm. Maybe they would coexist that way. It, it was just, it was mind-boggling. I was scratching my head at the player personnel. I was scratching my head at the tactical Uh, if you will, game plan Mm -hmm. uh, or lack thereof from this U.S. men's national team in this first half. They made this game much more difficult than it had to be. The last three times they played against Trinidad, the last three times they played against Trinidad, three wins, 19 goals for, Mm -hmm. zero against, Seb. It didn't have to be this difficult.
1: So it wasn't one of those games where you dominate and you have a ton of shots on goal and the goalie has a blinder. He played fine, but that's not why this was, right? It was, it was genuinely you're dominating the ball. You have all of the ball. Like there was, there was a 35-minute stretch where I didn't see Matt Turner on my television screen, right? right? You, you actively forgot that he was the goalie for the U.S. men in this game. And yet, despite all of that possession, all of that dominance on the ball— as we showed you in the highlight, first shot on goal, 55th minute. There really wasn't even, beyond a shot on goal, you can have a clear-cut chance without a shot on goal. There wasn't even a clear-cut chance uh, in that first half. You're, you're talking about tactics, Herc. How much of that is at the feet of a Greg Burhalter? How much of it is at the feet of the guys who played in this game and, and filled in the roles of those who aren't there, the Christian Pulisic's and the Tim Weyas. And how much of it is just the fact that you don't have, hello, Christian Pulisic and Tim Weah, who I think right now you could argue are, the best players on this national team, and when they're with the national team, among the most consistent as well.
2: Do you think that Christian Pulisic and Timothy Weah not being here would be a factor if they just played in a regular 4-3-3? I mean, think about when this U.S. men's national team in this game looked its best. It's when they reverted back to a 4-3-3. It's when Mm -hmm. Malik Tillman was out. It's when Kevin Paredes were out. It's no 4-2-2-2. It's none of that. It's you're just playing the way you know how to play. You're giving players an opportunity to shine where they play best. It's not rocket science. Honestly, it shouldn't be this difficult. You mentioned Turner wasn't even mentioned on the broadcast because he shouldn't be mentioned on the broadcast. Mm -hmm. Uh, You knew exactly how Trinidad would and could hurt you if they were going to. Trinidad had no interest in trying to hurt you any other way than besides defending like madmen and transitioning at speed, if you can take that away from if you can make them have to chase you, open them up, it's going to be easier. Don't play right into them. I, I just thought it, it's very easy for us to sit here and talk after things happen, right? I'm sure Greg Berhalter would say that. It's easier where you are. Yes, but don't make it harder where you are. It didn't need to be this hard.
1: So we're looking at the 11 here, and I don't think there's too many surprises, right? Like Balog and McKinney, Musa, the back four, Turner. That's all very solid to me. The, the only two interesting choices here that he had are the Pulisic Way replacements he's gone with, Paredes oh, and Tillman. I thought, what do you think
2: of those choices and how those guys performed? I thought there were three surprises. Okay, um, I, I'll go with the obvious two, Paredes and Tillman. And I don't think either were very sharp. And it bums me out for Tillman, who's been on a tear Mm -hmm. uh, with PSV. He's been very good. It bums bums me out because I don't think he was put in a position to succeed. That said, he had positions regardless of... He had situations regardless of positions where you would expect him to be sharper. He wasn't. The same thing can be said of Kevin Paredes. I don't think Kevin Paredes was sharp tonight. I could sit here and talk into him, blue in the face about how Kevin Paredes shouldn't be put in that position, but then you're on the field and you're in positions or situations where no matter where they put you, you should do better in. He did not. The third would be Cameron Carter Vickers. Now, not because I don't think he's a good player, Mm -hmm. I have no issue with him starting, but Chris Richards was one of those top center backs that you would pencil in every single time. And per the broadcast, per TNT, the reason he's not there is because of playing time, because Mm -hmm. he's not been playing that much. So now you're opening up a precedent that if I'm Greg Verhalter can get very, very sticky when Matt Turner isn't gonna be playing. <laughs> well, but the other guys aren't,
1: the other goalies are also not playing. So Gaga's there's no direct playing. competition there.
2: Gaga's playing. Right. So, you know, and, and, and who's, who's to know what summer move happens or doesn't happen for the mm-hmm. rest, and they may be playing. So all I'm saying is sometimes, and you, we've heard it here, Greg Verhalter has a tendency to talk himself into a corner and some, <clears throat> excuse me, sometimes he can play his hand. Balogun got the
1: start tonight, but Pepe gets the game-winning goal. Uh, we talk a lot about that number nine position, Herc, how much of a gap really truly is there between the two. I'm of the mindset that there is a gap, right? You that Balogun is the clear number one. But then there are days like today, and then you factor in the fact that Balogun's not in the greatest moment with his club. If we look at the, the, the recent window, right? Last four games with Monaco without a goal and maybe there's a case when you think about the second leg to start ricardo pepe
2: you could also make a case that different strokes right uh, and not for different folks but for different games um i don't think this was a situation that was good for Balogun. he's i've said it many times what he does best is his movement is how he can unlock defenses in and behind them that movement was never going to be there for mm. him today I actually did not mind when there was two nines on the field. I thought Balogun's best play of the game came in this little uh, give-and-go, not even a give-and-go, little uh, ball played into Gio Reyna so Gio can finish it. I don't think there is that much of a gap. I'm still waiting for you to show me the game in a U.S. men's jersey that Balogun has distinguished himself head and shoulders above the other nines. Mm. I keep advocating for Pepe. Because as a nine, all you have to defend yourself with are goals and Ricardo Pepi, whether it's club or country, and I understand club. Mm-hmm. Luke Dejon, okay, for PSV is the team captain and arguably, arguably one of the MVPs or MVP candidate in the Eredivisie. 10 goals, six assists. I understand that of why he's waiting behind him, but even when he comes on and plays, he's scoring goals for PSV in limited time. Here for the US Men's National Team, Greg Berhalter can only deny Ricardo Pepe for so long. At Mm -hmm. some point, Ricardo Pepe and people around Ricardo Pepe are gonna be saying, what's going on? be asking, what more does he need to do? What about the subs in this game, Herc? As we're looking at uh, Greg Berhalter
1: here. I texted you at halftime and I said, would you make changes now, right? Or do you give him maybe what we see a lot of coaches do, the first 10, 15, 20 minutes of the half. And that's what he did, right? He doesn't make his first two changes which are Brendan Aronson and Ricardo Pepe till I think the 66th minute, right? So he gives he gives the starting 66. 11, the first 20 minutes um, of that second half. Obviously, Pepe makes a difference. Uh, you might make the case for Brendan Aronson um, as well, but he did seem to wait at a time when, after you've seen your team struggle like that against a team in Trinidad and Tobago, that for all the respect you want to give them, we have to say they got five USL guys on the roster. Right. Their three goalies had... Six combined caps coming into this game. They don't have one player anywhere near the top five leagues in the world. You want to talk about gaps. The gap between the U.S. and Trinidad and Tobago on paper on the first half of that sure. game was massive. And Burhalter, after seeing that, that that gap led to a 0-0 at halftime with a man advantage, still didn't go to his bench. Now, he might make the case I didn't have that many options on my bench because I, I don't have the depth that I usually do.
2: You asked me. Would I make any changes at halftime? I said yes. You said who, right? What mm-hmm. did I say? You said Tillman and Paredes
1: off, Pepe Aronson on. I don't, but I don't think you saying Pepe and Aronson on is some great bit of genius. I think
2: if you look at the guys on the bench, that was pretty much it, right? No, you have Sendejas there you could throw on. Uh, you, you got, you've got definitely options, okay? What, what I said happened, and when it happened, it changed the game. I would have gone halftime. I think sometimes the coach needs to send a message, a wake-up call. Um, I don't know what was said or what wasn't said in that locker room, but at times it happens to everybody. You're not playing well. The ball's not going in. It's not your day, whatever, et cetera. It's the message that's sent to wake you up, mm-hmm. whether it's vocally or whether it's with a move, and players will respond. I-, I thought it was the right time at halftime to make that move. Um You know, Greg did not. It still panned out. He won 3-0. Yep.
1: So the U.S. takes leg one of their CONCACAF Nations League quarterfinal showdown with Trinidad and Tobago 3-0 in Austin, Texas. Ricardo Pepe with the game-winning goal for the United States. And look at that. Most goals off the bench in U.S. history. Okay, Eddie Johnson, number one on the list. And Ricardo Pepe quickly climbing with five goals off the pine for the U.S. men's national team. (laughs)
4: <laughs> Next Goal Wins is a true story about the worst soccer team in the world, American Samoa. I can honestly say it's the worst bunch of players I've ever come across. All I want is just one goal, one goal. I went in this not knowing anything about soccer and by the end of the film I knew less. It's a story about triumph over adversity. That's really the thing that attracted me to this. Soccer's not in their DNA. They're weak. They are not weak. Jump, jump. Stop, you go around. This is the ultimate feel good underdog film. It's fun, it's uplifting, and it's about hope. We've worked too long and hard for this.
3: Are you with me, my team? A coach, my no, no. Next
1: goal wins. A movie about the national team from American Samoa is in theaters starting Friday, tomorrow. And joining us now on Football América is one of the many inspirations behind the film and a man who actually inspired me, Herc, back in the late 90s when he took my beloved DC United to the 1999 MLS Cup, Thomas Rong, And there he is, TR. Welcome to the show.
5: Great to have you. Thanks for having me, guys. Appreciate it. All right. So I'm,
1: I'm reading the description of the film here, Thomas. And it describes yeah. you as a, quote, down on his luck coach, Thomas <laughs> Rongen. So give us kind of the story here. How do you get from Chief Scout, U.S. soccer, to the manager job at American Samoa?
5: Very simple. Uh, Sunil Galati called me late in 2010, when, by the way, I was still employed by U.S. soccer. Um, and asked me if I could help a territory of the United States called American Samoa. Um, I looked at my wife and went, where's American Samoa? She went, Fiji. I go, yeah, I'm in. (laughs) Not knowing the backstory, that they were last in FIFA in the rankings, had not won in 20 years, had not scored a goal in 20 years, uh, had lost 31 to nothing against Australia, the worst ever uh, World Cup qualifying defeat. Um, so here we go to Polynesia and, and what a trip it was, by the way, incredible journey, uh, obviously, as most, you know, we eventually win 2-1, which was historic, became a documentary that now the great Taika Waititi has turned into a movie. And how's your day going? Because Michael Fassbender, Magneto is playing me.
2: <laughs> <laughs> you you got us beat there, Thomas. Hey, let me ask you a question. You mentioned that thirty-one to zero scoreline. I believe that was back in two thousand and one. So when Correct. you get there, what's the level like? Like, wh- what are you experiencing with these players?
5: <laughs> what, what do you think the worst team in the world? <laughs> right, what it's like? It, it, it. Listen, when the NESL folded, most international players, which is mid '80s when I when I played here, with. The great icons from Cruyff to Best to Pele, Beckenbauer, you name it. I stayed. I, I coached eight-year-old girls and boys. I became a high school coach. I became eventually a college coach and then I moved myself in that first year into MLS in 1996 where Farouk Qureshi took a great risk of me uh, not having any professional coaching experience. So I, I've been there and done that in terms of poor levels. Um, so it was really a challenge, an opportunity. And, and the more I looked at their games, the more I looked at their opponents, I knew this team was better than thirty-one nothing, or twenty-eight nothing, or eighteen nothing, or eleven nothing. You know, there's a there's a great line actually early in the movie where the assistant coach says at the Pacific Games, I wasn't there yet, this is progress. We only lost fourteen. We lost eighteen against them the last time. So I, I was absolutely prepared to take on probably the biggest challenge of my life which from downtown amsterdam we love challenges we, we live below sea level guys so we, <laughs> we, we we need to be innovative and we need to think outside of the box as a small country and, and embrace whatever we see which the the dutch do normally and i did as well and you know yeah there were challenges but great ride, great great journey for me personally and and professionally and if Somebody asked me, what was your greatest success? It wasn't winning the title, Seba, with, with DC United, which is wonderful. Don't get me wrong. It was not beating Uruguay with Cavani and Suarez in the 207 Under-20 World Cup. Uh, it, it was this journey here with this, these beautiful people on this great island that try to make their country proud uh, by going out each and every day. As amateurs, by the way, guys. Uh, and I'm so glad I was just able to help them along a little bit and at the end of the day, more young kids are playing on the island. It's a rugby island, an American football island. So, brilliant! A lot of love for that uh, that tiny island in in that beautiful, you know, South Pacific.
1: Thomas, you took charge of the team for World Cup qualifying. Obviously, American Samoa did not qualify for the World Cup. So, what kind of was the highlight moment for you? The moment where you thought, "Boy, this is worth it. We really have made progress." What was that? that 2-1 victory you were talking about, without giving away too much of the movie?
5: No, no, no. It, it, there were three moments to me. One, I, I convinced the goalkeeper that gave up 31 goals against Australia to come back out of retirement. And it took me three weeks to do it. So I had a, a Rudy kind of thing. Let's do it for Nicky Salupa. That's, that was his name. And, and what resonated with me is, the first time I spoke to him, he said, when I walk the streets, people recognize me and go, oh, you gave up 31 goals. So my son thinks I'm a loser. And I just said, we're going to win, Nikki. We're going to win. We're going to win. And 10 minutes after the game, he comes up to me, cries, and he said, I just spoke to my son. He thinks he's a he's a hero. Jaya, the first transgender to ever play in a men's World Cup qualifying game, it is a brilliant story. Part of the the beautiful Fafa Fina, third gender, transgender community uh, in Polynesia where it's totally accepted Uh, that includes by the way the duchies you know we're were, were pretty liberal Uh, so that was a great moment when I connected with her early on and then an unforgotten story is I go to a high school game on my day off probably a weekend and there's this incredible running back so it's a high school football final and I go I want a guy to come to practice the president goes he's never played soccer I go I don't care I I just need him I have one guy midfielder can play through ball I've looked at all these teams who play. It's a passive high line, and he's going to get breakaways. And he scores the winner at 17, calls me 10 years later and goes, Coach, I'm in Miami. I'm the starting safety for the Oakland Raiders. I got two tickets for you against the Dolphins. I mean, you can't make up this stuff. Wow. Incredible.
2: Hey, Hey, Thomas, talk about how the movie actually came about. I mean, how does one get approached for this to become a movie? How does this start?
5: It started with a call from from Taika Waititi uh, just after he had won an Oscar for for Jojo Rabbit. And I didn't know much about him. Um, Introduced himself, pretty much told me a little bit of his history. Uh, He's a funnier Tarantino. He plays in most of his movies brilliantly, as he did at at Jojo Rabbit, obviously, where he plays a young Hitler. Um, And he said, you know what? One, I want to make my Polynesian proud. He's from New Zealand. From an indignant tribe, the, the Maori tribe. And he goes, I want to I make sure that the people that live on the margins in these beautiful islands, because there's a lot of sadness there, guys high unemployment roid, uh, rates, uh, high alcohol and, and drug abuse, obesity as well. Uh, there's one tuna plan pretty much where everybody tries to work. And the only way to get off the rock, they call that, a beautiful rock, by the way is to enlist in the army or get a scholarship, uh, for instance. And, and and he just said, and I love that, there's more than 50% of the cast is from um, Samoan ancestry. Uh, Kamara, who's the transgender actress that plays uh, Jaya, for instance, is a great example. So w- when he told me all of that, and he said, Michael Fassbender is playing you, I go, okay, I'm in. Mean, that's Magneto, <laughs> isn't it? Uh, uh, Inglorious Bastards, uh, by the way. Uh, Steven Jobs, uh, by the way. Uh, yeah, I, I can do that. Twenty years younger than me. Yeah, it's all good.
1: <laughs> so tell us about working with Michael Fassbender. Like, does he does he know his stuff as a coach? Because one thing that always kills me in soccer movies is when you see their players are coaching or coaches who clearly don't know how to coach or play soccer, doing it on the big
5: screen. Does he at least know what he's doing? <sighs> no. And, and and you guys showed. <laughs> No, and you guys showed in and he's the first one to say that. I'm a rugby guy. I don't know anything about soccer. And, 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 yes, it's the biggest game. And, and yes, uh, it, 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 it's, you know, it, it, it's an interesting, it's a comedy drama, guys, uh, and with a lot of things changed from the original documentary. It's like, you know, Ted Lasso meets Cool Runnings by the way of the Mighty Ducks with, with Taika's great uh, humor, obviously. Um, you know, it's about, for him, it was more about using football, the biggest game in the world to build spiritual bridges across the Pacific more than anything else, you know? And, and, and I was drawn to that. I had not a lot of influence on anything, the script. I've never met Michael Fassbender up till this day, by the way. So that tells you a little bit that he went with it, ran with it. And it's just an uplifting underdog story. I think that's much needed in the world right now, and and it's the biggest game as well. So let's let's see where this thing is heading. All
1: right, there we have it. Next Goal Wins in theaters starting tomorrow. Thomas Rongen, thanks so much for the time, man. Great to have you with us here on Football Americas.
5: Thanks, Thomas. Thanks, Seba. Thanks for you guys do great jobs. Well done.
1: Mexico gearing up for the first leg of their CONCACAF Nations League quarterfinal against Honduras Friday down in Honduras. Second leg at Azteca next week. The two teams met at the Gold Cup this summer with Mexico winning for nothing. Not too many injury concerns for L3. Here's manager Jimmy Lozano talking about his strikers as well as the newest addition to his team, Julian Quinones.
0: No les voy a decir quién es el 9.
3: Tendrá que estar tranquilo y seguro de lo
0: que va a ser y es lo que estamos viendo. La verdad que no hemos visto alguna algún, eh, alguna presión extra que que él cargue. Al contrario, lo vemos muy tranquilo, muy contento, muy ilusionado al igual que los compañeros y, y es lo que le tenemos que decir que esté tranquilo, que, que salga a jugada, divertirse, que es lo que nos va a hacer bien a todos.
6: All right,
1: kids Today we've been waiting for for the better part of I don't know. Year, year and a half. Julian Quinones finally Mm. eligible to represent Mexico in international play. The question here is, should he start this game against Honduras on Friday night?
2: No. Listen, there is no should when it comes to players who are about to make their debut, right? Mm -hmm. Potential. Official camp, right? Like, you don't come in in a situation and expect for him to be a starter. And where do you expect him to be a starter, quite frankly? When you earn a call-up, you earn the opportunity to prove yourself. And from there, continue to prove yourself. I think this is one of those situations where Julian's gonna have to kind of sit, bide his time, wait for his opportunity, and then grab a hold of it. Because if you're talking to me right now, like he's got a guaranteed spot anywhere in that front line, I don't buy it. I mean, on the left, no, Chucky. On the right, Antunas is as productive as they come right now. And in the middle, up top, like, are you going to add him into that mix as a nine with, with Santi Jimenez in the form he's on right now or Henry Martin? I, I, I don't think he's got that starting uh, situation anywhere resolved. Yeah,
1: let me just ask you this. Antuna and Chuki, they're not immovable for you, right? Those are positions that Julian Quiñones could eventually overtake.
2: Yes. Well, Antuna's productivity makes him immovable for Jimmy Lozano, so mm-hmm. I don't think he's moving him at all. Chucky's okay. in the best form that I've seen him in quite some time. I mean, he's been I, and granted the level in the area divisi, whatever you want to say, but we've not seen this type of Chucky productive, you know, uh, confident, mm-hmm. having fun on the field in quite some time. So I, I don't know if you want to mess with that either. Look, given what this Honduras
1: is, I don't know that there's a lot of fear. So I think there's not really like an urgency. There's not a desperation from the Mexican team to say that we need to start this guy, right? I I would not start him more for political reasons. One, externally, there's going to be more pressure. If he starts away in Honduras, which we'll get to exactly where in Honduras it is later, um, things go bad, the pressure will mount, right? If you bring him off the bench... Late in the game, there's kind of a built-in excuse if things don't go really well. And then internally, Herc, and this is where I would lean on your expertise, and I think Jimmy Lozano seems to have a pretty good feel of this dressing room. We have to say that. What would it do to the locker room if you bring in a guy like Julian Quinones all of a sudden and drop him into the starting lineup in the national team?
2: Would that Mm -hmm. be a problem, or would the guys be okay with that? It's the national team. Best players should play. It's that easy. The situation here is the elephant in the room, that situation you would create that you are referring to is because he's a naturalized player. Mm -hmm. It's because he's not Mexican born. It's because he's not Mexican bred. There's that hanging over him. Mm -hmm. So they're going to scrutinize every single thing he does. If he made a mistake, it's going to be magnified. If he makes a wrong decision on the field, it's going to be talked about more than any other player. And more interestingly here is Jimmy Lozano. Remember Jimmy Lozano at the Gold Cup when he was asked about naturalized players, dual citizens, said he would not like to play with them and that they didn't have a place on his team or in his squad. And here we are today and all that seems to be forgotten. So there are elements in play that are going to magnify the situation even more.
1: All right. So Julian Quinones then expected to make his debut with Mexico against Honduras tomorrow night down in Central America. What about the number nine position, Herc? Who do we think Jimmy Lozano will tab to start at striker tomorrow against
2: Los Catrachos? Jimmy Lozano, I think Jimmy's gonna go with Henry. Um, I've been hearing reports, reading things, reports, that it's between both Jimenez and that he's leaning on Raul Jimenez. Let me I tell- saw that report too. That it's between Raul and Santiago, and Henry's been forgotten. Yeah. Let me let me tell you really quick why I think it's why I think it's not Santi, for uh, Jimmy. Okay? Because everybody is clamoring for Santi. I get it. I'm with you. We get it. But you have to see the tendencies here. Jimmy Lozano, at the Pan American Games, Santi's age group, doesn't take Santi Jimenez. Mm-hmm. Jimmy Lozano in the Olympic Games, Santi Jimenez's age group. Doesn't take Santi Jimenez. His nine for that game or that tournament was Henry Martin. The other nines in the Pan American Games and the Olympic Games were nines like El Mudo Aguirre, nines like Ronaldo Cisneros, ex Atlanta United, over Santi Jimenez. Gold Cup for Jimmy Lozano. I know he didn't choose that Gold Cup roster, but Santi Jimenez when he had him at his disposal, only started one game, Qatar. The starting nine, the nine that he leaned on, again, Henry Martin. In the past, in the games leading up to the Germany game, it's been Henry Martin. I think he's gonna go back to the same well because he trusts Henry Martin. I mean, it wouldn't shock me. Everything you say is true, right? We know he loves Henry
1: Martin, and Henry Martin's a good player, but at the end of the day, He's not on a tear like Santiago Jimenez, right? Santiago Jimenez has 15 goals since this season started. This guy's red hot. And you just mentioned Baligan uh, when we were talking about Julián Quiñones, right? To me, the interesting thing about watching Baligan tonight is Baligan's in a little bit of a similar situation with Santiago Jimenez, right? Santi's had a dry spell right now with his club and he's coming into this international window. Same thing with Baligan, four on the trot without a goal for Monaco. And instead of opening up a can of worms and opening up a nine discussion by starting Ricardo Pepe, Greg Berhalter goes with the guy he's going to build around, which is Baligan. Why Jimmy Lozano can't accept that Santiago Jimenez is going to be the guy that he's going to build around um, is shocking to me. And the fact that Raul Jimenez, Herc, is being tabbed as the competition for Santi is even more worrisome. Yeah. Because I know he scored a goal but one league goal in 600 days does not wipe away the last 600 days. And that's the concern here. Whatever Jimmy Lozano is using to make these decisions, it seems to be a formula that the rest of us either aren't, well, certainly are not privy to, but really can't understand. I love Henry Martin, but there's no way you can look at what he's done over the last three months and compare it in any way to what Santiago Jimenez is doing. There is no way. And what you're talking about is not wrong, but if, if, if Jimmy Lozano is thinking of Santiago Jimenez as the guy he didn't take to the Olympics two years ago, now almost three years ago, that's, that is poor management. You have to accept that players evolve, things change, and this guy is
2: clearly not the same guy he was two years ago. You know, I- I'm so glad you brought that up. Um, not the Balogun thing, but but like, not being able to just not have a nine controversy. We saw in the press conference when he was next to Eddie Sanchez on mm-hmm. his side, I'm not gonna tell you the nine. He's playing a game. Why? Why can't just Santi be your guy? You're trying to build for something. Why build for something with a striker who's going to be 35 years of age Mm -hmm. at the World Cup? Why not just say, this kid right now is my guy. He is the future and I want him to be my present because the present today for good and bad is gonna help him in that future in 2026. I don't necessarily understand what he's trying to get out of this. Mm. Could you solve a problem by starting two strikers?
1: We've seen America do it with uh, Martin and Quiñones a little bit of a, of a two-up-top two setup. Could they do it here with the Mexican national team?
2: I mean, it's, it's that old, you know, Siggy Schmidt may rest in peace, you know, I always say, don't tell me who to put in, tell me who to take out, you know? Mm. Who do you take out? And that's right. the thing, like, what are you going to do? I think he's finally found something in the midfield that he thinks works. Why are you going to compromise that? Or in the back line that he thinks works. Why would you compromise that um, at the expense of playing two nines when one would suffice and everybody knows who that nine is? Santi Jimenez,
1: Raul Jimenez, Henry Martin. Three number nines, one choice tomorrow night for Jimmy Lozano. Speaking of choices, Honduras, or maybe we should say their federation, Herc, has made a very interesting choice. In the history of CONCACAF, one of the hardest places to play has been San Pedro Sula, uh, El Olimpico Metropolitano, where Honduras has usually played their games against the United States uh, and Mexico and plenty of other teams from around CONCACAF. But they're not gonna play in San Pedro Sula. They're gonna play about four hours away in Tegucigalpa,
2: What do you make of this? Are they, is Honduras giving away their home field advantage over Mexico? This is very interesting because per reports, our colleagues down in Honduras, they're going to go play in Estadio Nacional Chelato Uclas, or Uclas, excuse me. Uh, Here's the thing. That stadium, perfect grass, perfect, pristine, plain surface. Why wouldn't you want to play there? Nice weather. Let me tell you what San Pedro Sula used to be like or is like. Okay? Anytime you go play there, especially for the Mexican national team who do do not have a positive record there. Honduras has already beat them five times in San Pedro Sula, the Mexican Mm. national team. It's, it's, excuse me, I'm thinking about this right now. It's grass up to your knees, a thick field. It's 100 plus degrees of weather. It's 90% humidity. It's the fans on top of you, a hostile environment, one of the most intimidating places to play in all of CONCACAF and you're taking them to this different place Mm. because your team has evolved or has changed and they need a better surface for them to play on because they're better footballers. You're taking Mexico into their element, not out of their element. This could be one of the all-time worst backfires in in CONCACAF history for Honduras to take a team that you want to level the playing field with, especially with this Honduras today that we could say is arguably one of the worst generation of Honduran players or Honduran teams, I should say, for different circumstances of why some players don't wanna play with the national teams or why some players do play with that national team. But today, this is one of the worst generation of teams in Honduras' history. So to take away that leveling of the playing field and pretty much make it easier for a team like Mexico to play, it's beyond me. Yeah. Uh,
1: on top of the fact that this game won't be in San Pedro Sula, I'm feeling pretty good about Mexico's chances, which is rare to say when they play Honduras, but they beat them 4-0 in the Gold Cup in the last 12 games, Herc, between these two teams. Honduras has a grand total of three goals, and all three of those goals came in the same game at the end of 2018 World Cup qualifying when Mexico has pretty much already punched their ticket to Russia. So Honduras does not have a great recent record, against Mexico. Mexico minus a goal and a half, (laughs) Herc, is even money. I feel like usually Mexico to win by two away at Honduras, I would stay away from it. Am I crazy to to feel good about that?
2: You're crazy not to feel good about that. That's that's easy money.
1: There it is. All right. I like to hear it. Herc says easy money. Mexico minus one and a half at Honduras on uh, Friday night. It is a uh, A classic in CONCACAF. There's been some uh, great meetings over the years, but uh, Mexico recently uh, with the better of the record between the two CONCACAF rivals. Nobody's better than me. Here they come, Gotham. Oh, lovely play by Midge Purse. She has time to pick up Williams! It's Lynn Williams for Gotham in the Championship
6: Final.
4: Midge Purse, creator of the first goal for Lynn Williams.
6: Esther is there. Oh, and what a finish by the World Cup winner, Esther. created once again
1: by Midge Purse.
5: Welcome, FC, the 2023 champions. Number 23, Midge
1: Purse. Nobody better than me. And joining us now on Football America's the MVP of the NWSL Championship match, Midge Purse, her to assist The. Big, big contributors as Gotham FC got a 2-1 victory over O.L. Reign last weekend in San Diego. Midge, welcome back to the show. The last time we talked, we were field side at Snapdragon Stadium. You were in a very celebratory mood. What have you been up to since?
6: Uh, I've been keeping that energy going, still (laughs) celebrating. Uh, I've been calling it a tired euphoria. (laughs) A
1: tired euphoria. All right, I could get behind that. Now, I'm surprised you didn't show up to this interview still wearing your goggles because that's the image that has really gone viral. You not just with the goggles, with the cigar, with the MVP trophy, with the NWL championship trophy, you were giving off some very Michael Jordan vibes. I gotta say, Mitch.
6: <laughs> I haven't won anything in a really long time. So, you know, you gotta go big.
1: <laughs> Tell me the story about the cigar because I was reading somewhere, apparently you've been, you've been saving that one for a while. Is
6: that right? I have wanted to enjoy a cigar after a championship win for years. For years this has been in my plans and my dad actually a long time ago gave me a box of cigars cuz he's he's the reason why I have cigars. Um, and I've been holding on to them and it's it was the perfect time.
1: Uh, it's a great story. Speaking of great stories, I feel like we had all the great storylines heading into this final, especially with the the farewells from Megan Rapinoe and Allie Krieger. Uh, for you guys who were living the game and living kind of championship week, how present was that kind of within the dressing room as you guys were preparing for the game?
6: Oh, the the feeling was ubiquitous. It was everywhere. It was all consuming. We all... We felt it. We felt it on the the last practice. The slogan, I guess, for this year was it's not Allie Krieger's last game. And we made it all the way to the last game. And it was crazy to internalize and digest that it was her last game. So we felt it, but it was it was a beautiful moment.
1: Of course, the opposite of that is what happened to Megan Rapinoe just like three minutes into the game. Obviously, you're in competitive mode at that time, but surely you can appreciate kind of just what a shift you know that was for the stadium, for the game, for the event. What did it feel like as a player when when she's taken off the field there?
6: I I don't have words for how awful that was. I I felt. I felt for Pino in that moment. I think everyone in the stadium felt for Pino in that moment, and it was it was really an un- unfortunate event.
1: Did you feel like after she left the game, maybe the the traffic on that side of the field kind of opened up because it was maybe right twenty minutes after she's gone that you really start to take over? Did did that have any impact on on the actual gameplay on Saturday?
6: I'm sure that Pino not being on the field shifted a lot for, for them uh, emot- mentally, emotionally, and just in their tactics. I don't know uh, how much it affected my or my team's approach because, it, again, it was only, what, three, four minutes yeah. in. So we didn't really even get a feel for anything, but the the shift was felt in general.
1: All right, so walk us through the play. And when I say the play, there's no doubt, right? It's the setup for Lynn Williams. Uh, Hercules Gomez was talking about it on the last episode of Football Americas. Sure, it's impressive you beat three players, Midge, but you took four players out with the pass. That was even sweeter.
6: Um, I, I, My favorite thing about this play is that this is such a team goal, and I think people don't realize how much of it is. Esther's run to the near post is the most selfless run mm. that a nine can make. And it op- it parts the Red Sea. It opens it up for Lynn so well so she can get that tap in. And it was what a brilliant run she has. But this is a team goal. This is designed. We practice this cutback all the time. We practice this run. But to get people to make those type of sacrificial runs, it's, it's hard. So yeah. a lot of respect to both of them.
1: Yeah, nobody you want to be feeding in the middle more than Lynn Williams, right?
6: <laughs> yeah, or Esther one of the two I, it's, uh, great options to have in the box.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean speaking of Esther what a what a header on that corner kick for the eventual game winner. Were you expecting that? I didn't know she had yeah. that in her bag.
6: Oh, she has that in her locker. <laughs> she's she's so good in the air. She is she is just a complete baller like a complete player and what an addition. We wouldn't be here without her. She's incredible.
1: Yeah, I mean, she's definitely one of the reasons you can point to, although she got here really late in the season to the turnaround. What else would you point to to kind of explain the the worst to first that we just witnessed with you guys?
6: Coaching staff. I think the club did a whole reform. We had a, we had a reformation within the club, and then the coaching staff came in and brought this completely new attitude, energy approach, and we were all bought in, even when it was difficult and hard and it paid off. They, they were absolutely incredible. And I think in a lot of the games, when you see us play, we're not necessarily the better team every time, but we're we're better coached and we're more disciplined mm. a lot of the time.
1: I'm sure some of that came through in the second half. Walk us through your emotions in the second half of that final because you're the team that has the lead. You're trying to hang on. And, and things got crazy there at the end with the red card.
6: <laughs> things got so wild. <laughs> I did not know how to react. I actually... Think about that moment a lot, and I get this pang of anxiety because I'm like, they could have scored, mm. and that would have changed everything. It's it's really bizarre. Um, I, I don't know how to walk you through my emotions. That was the craziest game I've ever been a part of with the red card, with the free kick, and then the seemingly two minutes of extra time added after the free kick. Yeah, I was like, blow the whistle.
1: <laughs> well, finally, they did blow the whistle and you got your NWSL championship. Uh, I want to talk national team because we've got some big news with Emma Hayes coming in. Uh, but before we talk national team, I want to talk about analyzing the national team because, Midge, you joined the dark side. Of course, you couldn't participate in the World Cup. You were part of the media. I saw you. I saw you doing the show there uh, with Katie Nolan, Just Women's Sports. It, what was it like to be on the other side of the microphone?
6: That was a lot of fun. I think it was a great opportunity to be out of my comfort zone and see how the other half lives. Uh, Katie was fantastic. JR producer, was incredible. So it was a really great experience.
1: What was it like watching the World Cup as an athlete? Because I know, obviously, the dream for you is to be there. You saw the team struggling. And I'm sure, you know, watching it from afar, kind of feeling that you could help must have been tough
6: it's not fun. It's, it's, uh, it's a painful thing, but at the same time, a lot of things can exist at once. And while it's not fun, it's really beautiful to see some of your friends live out their dream and, and do really well, uh, and root for them and cheer for them and want them to do really well. So it was, it was a niche experience.
1: <laughs> mm, a niche experience. All right, all right. It sounds like there's more to that, but we'll have to dig into that on another episode. <laughs> i got to ask you about Emma Hayes. This is one of the, the biggest names uh, in all of women's football. What's your reaction to hearing that she'll now be the next manager of the U.S. women?
6: Well, like you said, one of the biggest names in all of international football. I welcome her to the U.S. I think she's going to be absolutely incredible, and I can't wait to see what she does.
1: As somebody who's part of this team, part of the dressing room, What does she need to know uh, about this group to get the best out of y'all?
6: Oh, you know, I stay in my lane. I think she knows exactly (laughs) what she needs to do, and I think she'll do just that.
1: (laughs) All right, fair enough, fair enough. Very political from the player's perspective. I can respect Um, that. Um, What about the Olympics coming up? Because we know the Olympics is a whole different animal from the World Cup, right? Roster spots, it's a lot tougher to make an Olympic roster, usually just down um, to 18. How stiff do you think, Midge, the competition is going to be for one of those 18 roster spots?
6: I think every time we have any type of tournament, any tournament, any qualifier, World Cup, it's always difficult to make the roster. And it's it's. No different than the past. It will be incredibly hard and an incredibly honorable position. Mm.
1: How does missing out on the World Cup maybe impact you and your thoughts, your desires about the Olympics?
6: Uh, they don't, to be quite honest. It's uh it's a new cycle, it's a new coach. I think that everyone kind of enters new cycles with the same attitude, which is you it's earned and you and you gotta go after and get it again.
1: Mm. Speaking of earning it, I think a lot of people are thinking, all right, if the U.S. is going to get back on top, they're going to have to earn it at this Olympics after the the disappointing showing. Is it realistic for us as American fans to still think that the U.S. women's national team should be considered a gold medal favorite heading into the Olympics?
6: Wow, absolutely. Uh, it's shocking to me that anyone would categorize it as unrealistic. Uh, international football is is anyone's game. Anyone can win that, that tournament. So... Yeah.
1: That's Definitely some confidence realistic. there. There's some confidence there from Midge Purse. All right, well, Midge, uh, can't wait to see you back on the field with the national team. Congratulations on all the success with Gotham FC and enjoy what little sliver of, a, of an offseason you do have because I know it's brief.
6: Thank you. And here's
1: a look at uh, Midge Purse's MVP performance at Snapdragon Stadium in San Diego. It's Gotham FC. Won the championship 2-1 over O.L. Reign.
6: From Patriots Point, the Charleston Battery and Phoenix Rising, the 2023 USL Championship
4: Final. Segbert's got their Markanen! Nick Markanen puts
5: the battery ahead!
6: What a move, what a goal! There is still time. This Phoenix team
4: just never lays down.
5: There's the cross. hammer down, and it is!
0: It will be
6: decided in penalties tonight.
1: Phoenix Rising FC are the champions of USL Championship. We're joined now by their manager, Juan Guerra, who I, I believe is is at the party. Juan, where are you at? And why didn't we
0: get the invite? Oh, well, listen, I, I believe you guys got the invite. But well, you're pretty <laughs> far away. Let me see if I can move the computer. I'll give you a quick 360. Let's go. Out. Yeah, we're in the middle. We're in the middle of the celebration, man. It's It's incredible being able to. To celebrate with the community, with our people, with our supporter groups, owners, players, families, um, an inc- incredible turnover. like yeah, I mean being able to full circle to finish the season together and celebrate here in Phoenix and paint Phoenix red and black uh, it means everything to me.
1: Juan, you're looking good now, but I know you were sweating bullets at the end of that final. So I was watching it on my couch and I was nervous for y'all. First of all, you get you get the goal to tie it in the 90th minute, and then you miss. The first two penalties in a penalty shootout. Walk me through that PK shootout because you must
0: have been going wild. Uh, It's incredible. Completely out of the norm. uh, What we've been able to achieve this year, it's it's not normal. As you guys are seeing right now, seeing Emi Cuello try to panenka, the goalkeeper on the first one, he was so worried and so concerned. And I told him, as a player, I've done the same in a semifinal match versus Miami FC, and I tried to panenka the goalkeeper, and I failed. So I knew exactly how he felt at that moment. But thankfully, we were, we were able to, to close it, to finish strong. And listen, add a, add a start to this crest uh, means everything to, to all of us. And I'm very, very happy for what we've been able to achieve this year. I mean, you guys went on the road
2: against San Diego edge them out. You went on the road against Orange County. I was there for that with producer Beto. You edge them out. You go on the road against Sacramento. I mean, all these teams favored edge them out. I guess my question to you is at what point do you even think you need to practice penalties? Is that not like, an approach Like, Do you even think it's going to go to penalties? What's the approach of, of, all right, we're at penalties. Let's train for penalties.
0: Brother, I'm, um... I'm 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 constantly reading things and, and and trying to keep growing and 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 developing and I, and I read so many things from Mourinho this past month about penalties and about that he's uh, he's lost so many finals and penalties and he's done it all. He's practiced them every single day. He's done the other way where they don't practice at all. He's done a hybrid version of where they practice one week and the other week they don't train. And at the end of the day, it's uh it's 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 uh, it's a towing cost. It's just a flip. We played a very, very good team with Charleston, with a with an unbelievable coaching staff, with a head coach that that I consider family, that is Ben, and 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 someone in the in the front office that is Lee Cohen that I also consider family. What they've been able to do in Charleston, it's it's unbelievable, and being able to to go over there on the road, and 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 pull this off uh, means even more. So. Listen. At the end of the day, it came down to penalties. Both teams deserved it, and we were lucky enough to be the ones that that came out uh, on top of them. So tonight we celebrate. Tonight we uh, we make sure that we can soak it in and and embrace this moment. But we also understand and we are aware that that uh, that what happened this year it's it's not normal. Not normal with with twenty one new players, with with three new coaching staff members and the technical staff moving a stadium from one location to another, um, it wasn't easy. So we were able to achieve something together, and tonight we enjoy it. And I can guarantee you that starting tomorrow, actually, we started 48 hours ago. We're already thinking of next year.
1: Juan Guerra, the uh, Jose Mourinho of USL. That's (laughs) what we're going to start calling him, the special one. Uh, Let's talk a little bit about promotion and relegation, always one of my favorite topics when it comes to USL. You win the championship. I mean, in theory, you win the second tier. You should be moving on up. There's been a lot of discussion about pro-rel potentially coming to USL. Are you all on board with promotion relegation now that you've won a title?
0: Listen, uh, at the end of the day, um, I'm on board on on, on whatever is going to grow the sport, on whatever is going to grow the culture, on on, on whatever is going to help us develop and, and, and grow. Um, as a country and, and and the sport in the country i I do think that that promotion and relegation will will help all of us but I also understand and, and i empathize on, on on why um it hasn't happened yet uh, maybe listen this is this is not up to me to decide this is up to to other people that that, that sit in different tables than the table that I sit in and but at the end of the day if if they can sit down and they can acknowledge um, how things work out in South America, how they do in Europe, Asia, whatever. It's it's at the end of the day, um, this is the way that you can help the girl, help grow the sport in, in, in the country and in the nation. And and if they do it, we're going to support it 100%. Listen, if it doesn't happen, I can guarantee you that uh, us as an organization, as Phoenix Rising, we're going to make sure that we can keep pushing the envelope, that we can keep raising the standard that we can keep making sure that in whatever league that we're at, at the moment in the USL championship, um, we can raise that bar and that standard as high as we can. And that's a responsibility that we have. We control the controllables and what we can control is that. And as long as we can control how high the standard has to be, how much they raise uh, that bar, we're going to do that. And listen, if, if things change, I will welcome them. I will be the first one to celebrate. But if things don't change, I'll be the first one to work very, very hard to make sure that the USL is, uh, is as high in the scale as we can make it.
2: Juan, we got we got images of this championship celebration that you're at. I, while I ask you this question, I want you to see these images and just think about this for a second. You're a young guy. You're 36 years old. A few mm-hmm. years ago, you were actually playing in this league. Here you are bringing a championship to Phoenix. Tell us a little bit about... Your kind of journey into coaching.
0: Listen, brother, you're you're getting very very close to my heart right now. Showing me those images. Um, I I retired um, early as a as a 32 year old. Um, I started my my playing career a bit late because I I did college in the U.S. So after I graduated from FIU is when I started playing as a professional. When you go to South America and you go to Europe and you're a 22 year old to start playing professionally back home. Everyone looked at me a bit weird thinking you're a 22 year old that hasn't played a professional soccer match. So when the opportunity came to to start my coaching journey at nd 11 with Martin Rennie at the helm, and I sacrificed a few years of playing career, but I also knew what I was going to gain. What I'm trying to say over here is that when I was a player, um, I started a bit late at 22 years old to play professionally because I started in South America and then I went to Europe. But now as a coach, I started a bit earlier than, than most of the coaches. So that's, that's kind of like how I saw it. I know it was a sacrifice. I still felt good to, to play a few more years and I wanted to compete. But I also had, had this love, this passion, this, this ambition to, to try to, to be the best that I can be. And and I understood that the starting early as a coach was going to give me the opportunity, to to push even higher, so that's what I did. And listen, it it, it, it everything happened so so quickly. Having the opportunity to come back to Phoenix and and be able to to give back after you showing me those images, the first thing that comes to my mind is is giving back. As professional athletes, whatever in the world, it doesn't happen. Whatever it is, professional athletes. Absorb, receive, and they take and they grab a lot, and 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 I've said this since day one to to our players about the importance of giving back. How much are we receiving, but how much can we give back? So how do we give back? We give back in our journey. We give back in in how professional we can be. We actually give back in our performances, and then overall we give back in our results. Tonight. And and a week ago we were able to get back because we brought a championship um, back to Phoenix, and uh, and that makes me very very happy. I tell the players all the time that they have the ability and the superpower of uh, of being able to control people's emotions, and that's a huge responsibility, man. That's 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 that's, that's not a gift. That's a responsibility that they have on their shoulders. Uh, when people come to the stadium, um, you control their emotions. You control how they can expend the next, uh, the weekend or the next 48 hours or their Sundays at home. And, 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 and the last week we were able to give back so much to this community, to their family of the players, to the city of Phoenix and the state of Arizona. And I am so proud of, of what the players have achieved and and the technical staff and the ownership group tonight. We celebrate all of them. Uh, we celebrate together, but I can guarantee you that, um, that we want to make sure that this structure that we have built it on this year um, is one that gives us a sustain that, that we could be sustainable for multiple years now to come. Next year, we're going to push the envelope. We're going to try to raise the standard on the bar, and hopefully we can now bring playoff games to Phoenix so we can enjoy it with our people.
1: Juan, you said it was a big sacrifice, was paid off in a big way. There he is, Juan Guerra, manager of Phoenix Rising FC champions of the USL Championship. Juan, great to have you with us here on Football Americas. Thanks for the time.
0: I appreciate you so much, brother. Thank you so much for the space. Thank you so much for the platform. You guys are doing an unbelievable job. I've been following you guys now for a while. And please keep giving more spaces to the USL Championship, to the USL League One, to the League Two. Uh, This is the only way that we can grow the sport in the US. At the end of the day, promotion and relegation, you and I don't control that. We cannot control that but we can control what we do in our day to day. So as long as you guys keep giving us more spaces to grow, to develop, to keep pushing uh, on the growth and development of the sport of soccer in the US, uh, we're gonna be greatly appreciated and we have the responsibility to keep pushing. So thank you so much, guys. Juan, your
1: wish is our command, my man. Thanks, and enjoy the off season, all right?
0: I appreciate you guys, thanks.
3: What's it like to have two brothers in camp? (laughs) Specifically about Paxton, like what's his style of play like? Do you see similarities with him, Brendan, no, Yeah, What's it like
5: to have oh, both yeah. uh, It was funny, like we were warming up today and Flo had no idea that they were brothers. He just thought that they just had the same last name. I was like, bro, they look exactly the same, sound the same, like play the exact same. But I mean, they're both kind of quirky. They're yeah. both pretty, uh, I don't know, they're just like 100 miles per hour all the time. Uh, and, and you can see that. Real technical too. Yeah, I mean, you can see that whatever their family's doing, they're doing it pretty well.
1: All right, so it turns out Valerian Balligan didn't know Brendan and Paxton Aronson were brothers. Well, guess what? We know it and we know it well here on Football Américas. Both Aronsons, of course, called up into the U.S. squad for this window. Here's Paxton with our good friend and colleague Luis Miguel Echegaray.
3: Eintracht Frankfurt and USMNT international Paxton Aronson is in the house for ESPN FC and Football America. Paxton, how are you, man? I'm good. I'm good. How are you? I'm good. Welcome. Let's first talk about uh, your journey so far. Your first full season with Eintracht Frankfurt. Obviously, you joined in halfway through last time around. How are you doing? How are you adjusting? How's life in Germany?
4: No, it's good. It's good. Like you said, I came last year in in January, so I kind of used that time to settle in, kind of get to know the city, get to know the language, get to know the team and just life in the Bundesliga. So it was a good six months for me and then went home for summer break and then came back uh, with my first full season. And yeah, I was looking forward to it and it's been really good so far. And yeah been a good start to the season for both me and the team so i've enjoyed it a lot
3: how's it going with the new manager do you feel you have to win him over uh because of the you know new start for him as well a matter of time before you break into the 11 how do you think
4: uh i think always with a new coach coming in you feel like you have to impress right off the get-go um so yeah i just think building a relationship with him everybody on the team had to build a relationship with him with the new staff with the new coach but I think, like you said, um, I just kind of focus on when I do get the minutes, trying to make an impact, whether that's goals and assists or just, like you said, just doing everything I can for the team. And I think if I can continue to do that, coming on, making assists, making goals, and I can slowly work my way uh, into the starting 11. I had a couple starts in the beginning of the year in Conference League. And, yeah, I think if I can keep working towards that, and then when I do get my chance in the starting 11, really just seizing the opportunity, that's, that's what it's all about.
3: Well, let's talk about the game that, you know, recently has been played uh, against your brother. Obviously, I don't know if people know this. I'm sure you do. You've been told this, but it's the first time ever two American brothers faced each other in a top five league in Europe. Obviously, you got the W, but how did it feel to just, you know, be on the pitch at some point with Brendan?
4: Yeah, no, I actually didn't know that. Um, oh, great.
3: Well, it's another I, surprise but... for you then. There you go. Yeah,
4: it was... <laughs> It was definitely, it's kind of hard to describe, it was a surreal moment, really proud moment for me and of course my family, but it was definitely strange sometimes on the pitch, you know, when he's on the field dribbling against me and I'm having to backtrack play defense and he's trying to score against us and then I'm getting the ball trying to attack the other way. It It was strange for sure, just seeing him pick up the ball and in a real game, like you said, in the top five league, So it was, it was a really proud moment, a uh, really surreal moment. And it was one that I'll cherish for the rest of my life and like my family. So, but yeah, it was, it was really crazy.
3: Hey, we were just talking off camera as well uh, before we started taping that. You got to hang out with Miami Dolphins wide receiver Tyreek Hill when uh, the Dolphins played the Chiefs uh, in the, the NFL game in Germany. Uh, how was that?
4: No, it was really cool. It was really cool. I was just chilling at home and one of the media girls called me up and was like, hey, do you want to come hang out with Tyreek Hill and shoot some content? And I was like, yeah, of course, <laughs> I'll be there. So I just went over there. We hung out. It was super, super chill. He was a really good guy. Super low key. You would never think it's uh, the best wide receiver in the league. So he was a really cool guy, super down to earth, and it was a good time.
3: You played EA Sports uh, FC, right?
4: Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, 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 had to, I had to show him who was better in that. <laughs> Besides um, so that, it was a good time.
3: You are a product of MLS. Uh, are you following uh, MLS playoffs uh, right now?
4: Yeah, yeah, I do. I'll be watching Philly, but yeah, I, I watch all the games I can in MLS, and if not, I just watch the highlights the next morning. But,
3: what, no. what do you think about the playoff format, the new one? Uh, and yay or nay for you?
4: Uh, For me... Probably, no, I don't know. It's just so many games and they're so spaced out. Like Philly played, uh, I think it was like 10 days ago and now they have to play again. And yeah, Um, it definitely, I think, brings a whole new aspect into it though, for sure. With the no goal differential, it just is two straight flat games where you restart from zero. So a lot of uh, opponents definitely come into it and yeah, you can kind of judge it however you want. But I think the standard old way for me would probably be the best way. How,
3: how important is it do you think to have that channel or that relationship between MLS and certain leagues in Europe in order to just become a transactional relationship right Where where MLS is not just like looking at Europe for talent but it's also the other way around just like you. Europe is looking at MLS for talent. How important do you think that is not just for both leagues but also for players like you that want to break into the international game?
4: Yeah it's super important to build like that community and that connection, because it gives the young players the hope that they can achieve their goal of playing in Europe. Like when I saw my brother first go to Salzburg and make the deal, and then, like I said, like when Mark McKenzie went over too, it was like, okay, this is really happening. The European clubs are are taking note of what you're doing in MLS, and then you have a real chance if you can perform to make that step over.
3: All right, let's. Uh finish up with with that part of that question that i had regarding your international career obviously your senior debut with the usmnt back in january Uh, how how far away how close do you think you are to to be recognized on a more permanent basis
4: uh yeah i think i've been with the u23s the last camp that's the start of the cycle and uh we played against mexico and japan and it was really great uh playing with the guys playing with the team, I had I had a lot of fun and it was two really competitive matches and yeah, but also on the flip side is what I do with the club. I think if I can, like we spoke about before, come in and get maybe more consistent minutes, get a couple more starts and then make that impact. I think that's when I can really make that push for uh, the men's team. But I always just want to keep my head down. And yeah, I think if I put the work in, my time will come with the men's team. Um, that's what I believe. And yeah, I just think now with the U23s, I can focus on that.
3: Under-23s, speaking of which, the Olympics, uh, obviously a massive deal. What is success, do you think, for, for, for your team, for the under-23s? in that? is it as easy as gold or bust, a medal? What do you think?
4: No, I think, of course, the main objective and everybody's dreams would be gold but you know uh, a lot of factors play into it so I think everybody at the end of the day would be happy with getting a medal also you know you could be proud of that but I think the dream of the group is yeah gold of course and uh, it's a really good group Um, a lot of guys that I haven't really seen or played with for a while because it's a bunch of different age groups I was with the U20 team But there's guys that are 2001s, 2002s coming back into the mix that uh, I haven't played with since I was youth. So it's good seeing a lot of familiar faces.
3: So uh, tough question, maybe Copa America or the Olympics?
4: Ooh. (laughs) Ah, I don't know. That is difficult. (laughs) You gonna be? Go ahead. Maybe Copa. May, I think maybe Copa America.
3: All right, Copa America.
4: Of course, yeah. the Olympics is a unique opportunity as well. But yeah, um, for I don't know, it's a tough question.
1: I think I would take both, honestly. But yeah, yeah. Copa America. Paxton Aronson, an unused sub tonight against Trinidad and Tobago in the U.S. three nothing win. But here's a look at his stats over the last couple seasons with his club in the Bundesliga. Eintracht Frankfurt. And of course, for more Bundesliga coverage, you can always check out ESPN FC. The show is available seven days a week right here on ESPN Plus, and yours truly will be hosting the Friday and Saturday editions of the show. All right, time to check the mentions sir, before we get out of here on this 302nd edition ever of Football Americas. What are the folks saying after the uh, US 3 0 win over Trinidad and Tobago? GJ says, when will Berhalter figure out how to break down a low block? I think with so many repetitive matches played against CONCACAF, uh, this is in lieu of a better competition. He'd have figured it out by now. Herc, what do you think?
2: Fair question. Uh, I'm not too worried about it, though, because I don't think that's going to be an issue come World Cup, come right. Copa America time. Right. Like, it's when not- you
1: get to the knockout rounds yes. of big tournaments,
2: it's the that's opposite not how teams way. are going to set up. Yeah, right. it- it's those teams, you're in a low block versus them. Uh, that said... It has been painful to watch, if you look at what last World Cup cycle and these few games, when teams set up in a low block, they complicate the world for the U.S. Men's national. There's a lack of creativity. I'm hoping Giovanni Reina can change that. The 4 2 2 2 2 2 2 2 was a, was not conducive Mm -hmm. to some of those players. But once the field was open and you had a Giovanni Reina and you had Weston being active with him, uh, it opened up and the low block wasn't that much of an issue. But you're right. I just don't think that's gonna be an issue going forward in these big tournaments. Yep, Trinidad and Tobago. 11 guys
1: behind the ball for the first 35 minutes and then the 10 that were left behind the ball for the pretty much rest of the game. Next here on Check the Mentions, what else do we got from our viewing public? You think this U.S. men's national team is ready to compete for Copa America? This squad to be on the same or at least be the level just conmebol
2: teams. Um, Herc, is this team ready for Copa America? Sure. Listen, um, forget what you saw today, right? Mm-hmm. Those games are going to happen. We, we're still going to analyze them. We're still going to open them up, dissect, all mm-hmm. that good stuff. But don't think it's going to be like that all the time. Uh, especially in Comunibol. Some of these teams aren't the old Comunibol teams of the past. We're seeing Brazil struggle. We just saw Argentina fall Mm -hmm. today against Uruguay, and it's the type of game that they play. It's the type of way they get hurt. I think the U.S. can be the teams that hurts these type of teams in transition, being disciplined, uh, uh, being difficult to play against. Uh, Listen, Uruguay took it to Argentina in Argentina. Mm -hmm. on their day, the U.S. men's national can be just as dangerous right. as, as a lot of those teams in Certainly, when it's for all the marbles, competing against an Argentina or a Brazil will be very difficult, even this Brazil. But uh, I don't think it's impossible for this U.S. men's national to do some damage in
1: You are definitely saying that based on what you've seen from the U.S. in the recent past, not based on what you saw from them tonight, correct?
2: Correct. Yeah. Correct. But that goes for both Cominable as well. I mean, not just from what I saw tonight. You know, Brazil going down, Argentina going down, et cetera, et cetera. Peru being in shambles, haven't scored mm-hmm. a goal in, in five World Cup qualifying games. So, yes. I know it's not here on Check the Mentions, but did I see you online being the
1: no-fun police raining on Anthony Robinson's backflip celebration? Her, come yeah, on. I know I, you're in your 40s, but try not to be so bitter.
2: Yeah, I, I just, I just kind of, like, tweeted out, like, kind of, you know, messing around, and people mm-hmm. really, like, got angry about it. I was like, all right, I guess so. By the way, I will say... Impressive mm-hmm. that he could do a backflip. I am jealous. Uh, yes. I don't think backflips are smart in any celebration of any sport. Why? The injury risk. Yeah, do you remember the guy who played at Ralstar Lake, the Argentine guy, a few years back, who did that, scored a goal, did some backflips or a front flip. I don't recall which one it was, broke his fifth metatarsal. Ooh. Cele- it happens. It happens. Yes. I'm not a in, in, UFC, the same thing. When I see guys do flips, it always makes me cringe because you can get injured. All right,
1: that'll do it for this edition of Football Americas. We will be back on Monday. We will also be live immediately following the final whistle of the United States against Trinidad and Tobago. On Monday night, we will be joined by former U.S. goalie uh, Casey Keller here on the show. So, he's Herc. I'm Seb. Have a great weekend, and we will see you on Monday, not just for a U.S. recap, but also for a Mexico preview as L3 will be playing uh, against Honduras next week. Final word, Herc. Dumundo. Oh. He was itching to say something
0: there. (laughs)